0: It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Plynn, the latest on programs and policies, helpful hints and a bit of occasional nonsense, all in more or less plain English. Podcast number 836 for the 16th of June, 2023. This week, a VPN is essential whenever you use a mobile device with a public Wi-Fi hotspot, but it can also improve privacy and security at other times. It's important to understand the trade-offs, though. In short circuits, some internet crooks are stupid, and I like to make fun of them, but there's no shortage of crafty criminals. We all need to be aware that they exist and to beware of their tricks. In other words, be wary. I've been trying to find some time to talk about the enhancements Adobe has added to the Creative Cloud Suite, but blockbuster additions to the photography programs kept getting in the way. Today some of the other apps take center stage. And 20 years ago, only on the website, in 2003, Nikon loaned me a digital SLR camera. I had been using digital cameras since about 1999, but they were more like point-and-shoot cameras than single-lens reflex cameras, the ones I'd used since the 1960s. The D100 was my first extended experience with the new breed of cameras, and I was immediately sold. After writing about Google's limited free VPN in May, I thought now might be a good time to review the advantages of a full-featured VPN. A virtual private network doesn't ensure safety, but it does help. It's important to understand the trade-offs, though. Some websites may not work when a VPN is active. Network performance will be at least slightly slower, and good VPN services aren't free. Until she retired, my wife worked from home using a computer provided by her employer. The computer connected via VPN to the company's servers. Without the VPN, the connection would be refused. I work from home and do not need to connect to an enterprise server. Any important websites I connect to use secure HTTP and I enable Secure FTP and Secure Shell when I need to connect to the TechBiter Worldwide Website server. But I still have a VPN for the computers. Not, however, for our phones. Our cellular service is provided by Google Fi, and it includes a built-in always-on VPN. It can be turned off, but I leave it on because it interferes with nothing. Home computers use NordVPN, and I had previously used that on the phones, but it interfered with a banking application. Your computer and any devices inside the network have private IP addresses, but the address on the internet side of the router is visible to any site you connect to. The address reveals your general location, In addition to encrypting all data, a VPN hides your IP address and can make it appear that you're in another location. When NordVPN connects, I generally allow it to select the location, and that location is usually Chicago. I could pick another location, such as New York, Buffalo, Toronto, Montreal, Dallas, Los Angeles, Seattle, Vancouver, or even an address in Mexico, Colombia, Brazil, South Africa, Spain, Ireland, England, Ukraine, or Finland. Not Russia or China, though. But South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand are also possibilities. If you think that you might be able to stream BBC television programs live by connecting to London, forget it. You also need to obtain a government television license, and that requires having a physical address in Great Britain. In some cases, you might be able to access streaming media from one country even though it's not allowed in your area, but some streaming services won't function if they detect the presence of a VPN. There are other advantages. Your internet service provider can see what you do on the internet and some ISPs collect information about users and sell it. Using a VPN eliminates the ability for services to do that. As I described in last week's program about browser fingerprinting, a VPN doesn't eliminate the ability for websites to collect enough information about your browser and your computer to identify the computer but it does improve your chances. Whether you use a VPN at home might be optional, but any computer that's used with a public Wi-Fi hotspot should absolutely have a VPN. Encryption protects data that could be viewed if you use a public Wi-Fi access point in restaurants, coffee shops, and airports. If you travel frequently, or even infrequently, and use public access points, use a VPN. That doesn't apply to a Wi-Fi system in your home or office. But what about the downsides? And yes, some do exist. The most common is degraded downlink and uplink speeds. But this has not been a problem recently, at least not for me. We pay breeze line, formerly wide open... Sometimes having a cat is quite like having a young child who wakes up in the middle of the night demands a pickle, has to be taken down to the refrigerator, and then put back to bed. Chloe has received the required amount of attention, and has now promised to go take a nap somewhere. So, where was I? Oh yeah, what about downsides? Yes, some do exist. The most common is degraded downlink and uplink speeds, but that hasn't been a problem recently. At least, not for me. We pay BreezeLine, formerly wide open West, for 500 megabits per second downlink, and a 50 megabits per second uplink. In early June, speed tests showed 499 megabits per second downlink with the VPN off, and 478 megabits per second with the VPN on. That's less than a 4% difference. Results were similar for the uplink 53 megabits per second with the VPN off, 48 megabits per second with the VPN on. Oddly, the ping speeds were better with the VPN on. 19 milliseconds versus 30. Ping measures the amount of time required for one system to respond to another. Ideally, these times should always be single digits, but the two values I received are common for consumer-grade internet service. Although a VPN doesn't make it impossible to connect to one of my bank's servers, it means that the bank's computer is less certain that I am who I claim to be and generates an out-of-band challenge that adds a few seconds to the login time. Overall, it's better to have a VPN than to forego one because of perceived downsides. Having a VPN can lead to a false sense of complacency, though. The VPN offers protections against being tracked or identified, but is largely ineffective against browser fingerprinting and completely powerless against phishing and social engineering. Uh, more about that is coming up in short circuits. Free VPNs do exist, but I think it's better to pay a few dollars a month for commercial service. The free VPN from Google is effective, but quite limited. Three recent VPN reviews are online, and they can help you choose which VPN is right for you. The articles are from Tom's Guide, PC Magazine, and Wired, and you'll find links to all of them on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. The VPN I selected several years ago and recently renewed for two years is from Nord. Tom's Guide ranks Nord as second behind ExpressVPN. PC Magazine places Nord second behind Proton. And Wired says Nord is best for circumventing geographic restrictions, but Surfshark is best for most people. Check out the reviews and think about which features are most important for you. In short circuits, it's no longer the case, if it ever was true, that Internet thieves are stupid. Some are, of course, and I like to laugh at the outrageously idiotic attempts. But even these fool some people, despite an abundance of clues. Even careful, intelligent people can be fooled by social engineering scams. Social engineering attempts to exploit human psychology instead of finding a way to break into a building or a computer system. It's easier to fool someone into handing over sensitive data than it is to find and exploit programming errors. Criminals can masquerade as somebody from the company's IT department, a bank, or a government agency, such as Social Security or the IRS. We don't need to have a degree in computer programming to thwart them, just the intelligence to spot a scam. A report from Ideal Tax shows Google search instances in early June for the phrase IRS text scam. You'll see the chart on the TechBinder Worldwide website. It shows a giant spike around the 3rd of June, and several smaller spikes around the end of May and on the 1st of June. This might be the result of a blast of email scam messages purporting to be from the IRS. Scam emails and phone calls claiming to be from the IRS may threaten your arrest unless you immediately pay a tax penalty, often using gift cards to transfer funds. Two huge red flags are present in that sentence. First, the IRS never threatens an arrest by email. Never. Even if you're already dealing with the IRS, they won't make a threat to arrest you by email or phone. And the key word here is never. That's a 100% indicator that the message is a scam. And second, no government agency, business, or bank will ever demand payment via gift cards. If the IRS has a question about your tax return, they start by sending a letter. The IRS will call or come to a home or business only if there is an overdue tax bill, an unfiled tax return, or for businesses' failure to make an employment tax deposit. But before anybody shows up at your doorstep, you will hear first from the IRS by mail. A real letter in a real envelope. Even if an email appears to be legitimate, examine it carefully. Don't believe the from field on an email because that can easily be spoofed. Ignore any links or telephone numbers in the email. Instead, visit the IRS government website or call the IRS number, which is available 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. local time. And you'll find a link to the IRS website on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The same is true if you receive an email or a phone call from Social Security, any other state or federal agency, a bank or a business. Don't trust the links and the phone numbers in emails. Go to the agency, bank or business website and follow the instructions there to contact somebody. It's a lot easier and less stressful to avoid a scam than it is to recover from one. Most of the major software developers have transitioned from Waterfall Methods to Agile. The older Waterfall Method depended on fully designing every aspect of an application, writing the code, and then releasing it. The danger of using what's called the Waterfall Method is creating an application that's simply not suitable, doesn't do what end-users want it to do. Agile Methodology starts with a roadmap and then releases bits of code as they're available. That way, end users are able to provide feedback, and the company can make changes along the way. Adobe has mastered that process. On the 19th of April, I wrote about Adobe's denoise feature in Lightroom and Camera Raw. I had planned to discuss some of the other additions to Creative Cloud, but Firefly and Generative Fill demanded my attention. Today, it's finally time to take a look at some of the other applications and their new features. After Effects has several new capabilities. Animations have more controls that can be applied to text and shape layers in a new dialogue. The interface has also been streamlined for enabling and disabling effects. Premiere Pro can now export directly to social media. That makes the process faster. Producing an initial rough cut can be accomplished faster with text-based editing. The user can search source transcripts to identify content to be added to the timeline. Illustrator users will find that hyperlinks are retained when exporting a PDF file, The Trace function has also been improved, and an Enhanced Search function makes it easier to find layers and objects. And this will be big when it's finalized. A beta feature attempts to identify typefaces in raster components. Artificial Intelligence has been added to InDesign. An Auto Style feature examines text and then attempts to add body text, headline, and subhead styles automatically. InDesign also now supports several additional graphics formats such as HEIC, HEIF, WebP, and JP2K. This eliminates the need for conversion before being added to a document. And to come back to the photography applications, which always seem to garner the largest number of features, curves have been added to Lightroom's masking feature. This allows more precise editing that previously would have required Photoshop. More mask options have been added to select people. The select people feature, which was added late last year, has been updated for easier selection of clothing and facial hair. Photographers will also appreciate some of the improved presets for portraits. Adaptive presets were added in 2022, but Lightroom now uses artificial intelligence for three new presets, polished portraits, darkened beard, and enhanced clothing. That's in addition to the Enhance, Glamour, Whiten Teeth, and Texturize Hair presets that already existed. And presets have been added for use with travel and vacation photos, a total of 18 presets to adjust color combinations and editing techniques by applying multiple adjustments with a single click. (music) You won't find any new features in 20 years ago on the TechBiter Worldwide website, but you will find my notes from 2003 when I started using a new digital camera, my first digital SLR. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, Use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session.